Well, this is good to be able to do uh, an adult Sunday school, a little less formal um, thing to do. But they said, I've got four weeks, and I thought, that makes it kind of difficult to know what you can accomplish in four weeks um, to do. So I thought we'd aim big at the Christian life um, and try to do that. We, four weeks should be good for how to live the Christian life. Um, but what I, what I had done before in uh, Torrance was a little uh, four-week study on what Calvin has to say about the Christian life in his institutes. Um, because contrary to what lots of people say about Calvinists, we are very concerned with the Christian life. Um, just because we believe that Christ has done everything for our salvation doesn't mean we have no place for thinking about how we ought to live um, in light of that. And there's many books that are written on Christian living, Christian holiness, all sorts of things. And generally, um, my way of assessing those books is to look and see how long it takes someone to mention the Holy Spirit. Um, if you have a book on Christian living and the Holy Spirit doesn't get much mention, um, he doesn't get much mention, it may not be much of a book um, on the Holy Spirit. And one of the advantages of, of John Calvin's writing is he's very concerned with the Holy Spirit. He's very concerned with the activity of the Holy Spirit in the work of the Christian life. Um, and that's what's, what's led B.B. Warfield to call Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Um, he said, if you want to put certain people in certain categories, he said, Augustine is the theologian of grace. Anselm is the theologian of the atonement. Luther is the theologian of justification. Um, and Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit plays a big role in when Calvin talks about how do we live the Christian life? Um, how does God work holiness in us? If you divorce that study from the work of the Holy Spirit... Um, you're really only getting a small part of what God is really teaching in his word about Christian living. Um, the other funny thing about this study was I put it together right before Dr. Horton came out with a book called Calvin and the Christian Life. And I thought, well, I should have saved myself the work and just waited till the book came out. Um, but the work's been done, so we might as well make good use of it. And if we're going to talk about the Christian life, the, the life that we need to talk about, we need to define that. Um, because lots of people will talk about a Christian life, and um, you can de define that in various ways. I'm just going to put this down. Um, we can define that in various ways. So it's good for us to think of what Calvin defines as the Christian life and then how he unfolds that as how the Holy Spirit leads us on that life. Um, and so he said the life of the Christian is the constant study um, and the exercise in mortifying the flesh until it is certainly slain. And the Spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Um, one of the interesting, interesting things, if you study John Calvin, you study his thought, you see how much of an influence he's had on our confessions. Um, how influential he was and how we tend to formulate those things. But those are, those are great ways to think about what is the Christian life, what does it involve? How are we to think about it? And he had those four elements. It's a constant study. We have to strategize about how to live the Christian life. It takes planning. Um, it takes work. Um, everyone always wants a shortcut. That's why we, we're always drawn to someone who says, you really want to live a Christian life? I got five steps for you. Uh, we like that because we think five I can do, and maybe I can do it rather quickly. Um, but he says, no, it's a constant study, and it's going to be a constant study all of our lives on how we put to death the old self and bring to life the new. Um, it's the constant study and the constant exercise, he says. Um, and that's helpful too. We have to think about it, but then we have to try to implement it. 
Um, you can strategize and still not do it. Um, I don't know if you know, you're a list maker, you make to-do lists. Um, it's great to have a to-do list, but if you constantly see that list with nothing being checked off, um, the list hasn't really helped you much. Um, we need to have these lists where we not only study how to live the Christian life, but then we are constantly exercising what we're studying with that plan. And that's to continue to slay the old self, to mortify the old nature until it's dead. Right? I kind of like that. He says you have, to go, you have to do that till it's certainly slain. Um, that's a lot of work. That involves constant work in the Christian life. And you can't stop until it's slain. And when will it be slain? After this life. Um, but that's where we're doing. And not just to put off the old, but Christian living always recognizes you also have to put on the new. Um, and that's sometimes where we struggle in the Christian life is that we aim all at trying to put off certain things and we don't put on anything else in its place. And the scriptures always say you are putting off one thing in order that you might put on another. Um, and so when we're just trying to kill off bad sinful habits, um, we're never, and we never put on good sinful habits in their place. Good, not sinful. Scratch that from the notes. Uh, we never put on good habits in their place. We're not, doing, we're not using what God has actually told us to do. That's why Calvin says it's the constant study and the constant exercise of mortifying the old and causing the Spirit to have dominion over us. Um, so not just this negative putting things off, but the positive putting things on. Um, and as he describes that, hopefully we can see if we know our catechisms well, um, we can see that in how we talk about what we call true conversion. The putting to death of the old self and the coming to life of the new. Um, how, does that, how does that happen? Um, well, it becomes the spirit comes in our hearts to make us heartily sorry for sin. To be sorry for it and to hate it. Uh, to want to flee from it as something that God hates. Um, and wanting to put on the new man that takes heartfelt joy in doing the things that are pleasing to God. Um, that that's what true conversion consists of. Um, in doing that work of putting to death the old and bringing to life the new, um, and to be engaged in that as what we want to do. Now, how do we do that, right? It's easy, again, to say what we ought to be about. Um, but a lot of us could say, well, now I know what the description is of it in the catechism. The trick is doing it. Uh, the trick is, how do I do that in my life? How do I try to put to death these old things um, and bring to life the new? And it has to begin with a recognition that the Christian has been united with Christ in a life like his. Um, the Holy Spirit is the encouragement for holiness because it doesn't leave us in this mere activity that we have to be engaged in to put the old to death and to bring the new to life, it reminds us that the old has been put to death in Christ and has been brought to life in Christ. Um, the hope is in what Christ has done in our union with him to do these things that he's called us to do. Because Romans 6 says we've actually been put to death with Christ. We died with him. Um, and when he goes into the grave with all of our sins, they all get buried there. As one theologian said, they're buried there never to rise up against us again. You always have to remember, life comes up out of the grave. Death stays in the grave. 
And when Christ dies, he takes all of our sin and wickedness down into the grave with him, the curse, the wrath of God, and it dies there, never to rise up against us again. Um, and the life he lives, we live with him through union with him by his spirit. And so for Calvin, the spirit is very important for us, bringing us into union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the things that are his are ours. Um, and that we have that certainty that these things will happen not through our effort, but through the finished work of Christ. And that work that's been applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship with him in his death, fellowship with him in his life. That's what assures us that this old self will one day be certainly slain. And that one day in glory, the Holy Spirit will have dominion over us. Complete dominion. Where there's going to be no more warring in the soul. Um, that, that can be a, a struggle we face in the Christian life as we continue to try to do these things, as we wrestle with the old self, as we come into worship and find ourselves going through the process of confession and having to confess the same sins that we, that we hear in our confessions week after week that we're so sick to death of. Um, I don't know about you, I sometimes just get sick of hearing my own confessions of sin. I get sick of hearing the same things coming up. Um, that I continue to struggle with. And we can feel that, the weight of that struggle, the difficulty of that struggle. And we have to understand that because of Christ, that struggle will one day end. Um, it's a wonderful thing to visit saints who are dying who, who will say to you, I'm looking forward to not being a sinner anymore. Um, I think Reverend Kaminga, who recently passed away, that was one of the things that he said. Um, he was looking forward to not being a sinner anymore. That there's that war that goes on in the Christian life. That difficulty of the old self struggling to come to life more and more and putting to death that old self. And if we are left just with the struggle and without the hope of victory that is ours in Christ, um, we could get very despairing in the Christian life. And one of the things is keeping Christ and keeping the Holy Spirit in mind. It helps us to take a very positive take on the Christian life. To not get so weighed down by the struggle but to say, as is popular in our day, right, the struggle is real. Right? It's not to say that the struggle is not real or we are minimizing it in any way. Um, but the struggle ends in victory. That's the, the hope of the Christian. That we're not struggling for no purpose. Uh, we're not struggling without even seeing um, some progress in our struggle. Uh, but we have to keep our eyes fixed on that future hope that the Spirit continues to remind us of. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him, in Christ also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it uh, to the praise of his glory. Why does the Spirit come to make his home with us, to guarantee us the inheritance is coming? Right. One day we'll have the inheritance. We won't need the guarantee. You need the guarantee until you have the inheritance to, to tell you and continue to testify to you, you one day will enjoy it. Um, and that, that's one of the points that Calvin makes. So long as we are in this world, our warfare is sustained by hope. And therefore, this guarantee is necessary. Uh, but when the possession itself shall have been obtained, the necessity and use of the guarantee will then cease. The Spirit is there to guarantee us that the inheritance is coming. Um, and we, we live in hope.
Um, Aeschylus said a long time ago that exiles feed on hope. And that's what the Holy Spirit directs us to do. Um, feed on that hope. Be sustained in hope in the midst of the struggle, that the struggle ends in victory. And so the Holy Spirit operates for Calvin in the Christian life as part of that future hope. And not just as part of the future hope, but as part of the present help. The Spirit's work is not entirely future. He doesn't just come pat us on the back and say, I know it's tough, but it'll be okay. And then go off to do his own thing. No, the Spirit comes to make his home with us, not just so that he might fill us with hope for the future, but also that he might be a present help in the midst of our struggling. That we don't fight on our own. The Christian life is not a lone ranger enterprise. Uh, we don't do it alone even for our own personal life. We do it with one another. That's part of the function of the church is God has given us a community of believers that we might encourage one another, that we might pray for one another, that we might lift up one another in our struggles. Because all of us experience the peaks and the valleys of the Christian life. And there are going to be times when God has you at a peak so you can be there for someone who's in a valley. Right? The pastor doesn't bear, can't bear the whole weight of that. The elders can't bear the whole weight of that. God's given us a covenant community and the office of every believer is to use their gifts for the support of the rest. Um, one, of, one of the things that I've noticed in my years of being a pastor is oftentimes people don't want to admit they need help because none of us like being burdens. Right? How often do we say that? I don't want to be a burden. Um, and I've had to give people what I call my burden-bearing speech. And over the years, you will hear my burden-bearing speech. Um, and my burden-bearing speech is, God has put us in a covenant community to be burden-bearers when we can. But all of us in a long enough continuum are going to be burdens to be born. We, we like to pretend that we will always be able to be burden-bearers, burden bearers, and we like to be burden-bearers. Right? We'd much rather have the burdened person come to us and carry them, right? We, we'd all much rather do that. But I'm telling you in the Christian life on a long enough continuum, some of you are going to have to be the burden to be born. That you don't have a right to say, I don't want to be a burden. That's what, this is, what we're here for, is to bear burdens. Right? Um, even our Lord needed someone to help him carry his cross. Right? There's none of us who can ever say, I'm completely self-sufficient. We've been put in a burden-bearing community. Now, we can do that in a limited sense for one another, but God has also given us his spirit who has broad shoulders to carry burdens, right? He's the one who brought creation into being. He's the one that breathed the breath of life. He's the one that brings people from the dead. Like, there's power there. And so as much as we are to be here to bear one another's burdens, we have the Spirit indwelling us to be the chief burden bearer. That the weight rests on his shoulders, and he's able to do far more than all we ask or can imagine. And so he's with us not just to provide a future hope, but to provide a present help. To direct us in the direction that we need to go. To enlighten us, to enliven us, to enable us to live uh, more and more a Christian life, and he works in practical ways to direct us. And what are the ways that the Spirit practically helps us? Um, well, one is by working a moral transformation in us, a changing our hearts and our affections 
to want to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Where a catechism reminds us that's one of the fundamental problems we have as fallen creatures is that we hate God and our neighbor by nature. We hate the very things we should love and we love the very things we should hate. And as long as the, the natural heart of stone remains in your chest, that's who you'll be. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes and changes out your heart and works in you a new life that suddenly you hate the things you used to love and you love the things you used to hate. And that is a work that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit, by that mysterious regenerating work where he brings us from death to life and turns our hearts to love the things that he loves, to want the things that he wants, to do the things that he wants to see us do. There's a moral transformation that the Spirit works. And the encouraging thing about that is once the Spirit has worked that renovation, it will never be undone. You can't go back to what you were before. Um, Dr. Hal Jones in seminary used to always stress this with us. He thought there needed to be more preaching about the doctrine of regeneration for the encouragement of God's people. And one of his things that I vividly remember, he can always put things in a way that I can't put them, and you can't do the accent either, so you're always handicapped. Um, but one of the things he said is, you know, you're not what you used to be. You're not yet what you will be, but what you were, you'll never be again. Because the Spirit has changed you, that new heart being worked in you cannot be unworked. Because it would take someone who has more power than the Spirit. And the Spirit is greater than any other power. And so once that work has been done, it gets carried forward because there's no one powerful enough to undo it. He sees to it that it's done. He works that moral transformation in us so that we can begin to want the things that he wants and do the things that he wants us to do. And he begins that work of conversion, of putting to death the old and bringing to life the new. And so he works this moral transformation in us, and he does so by the means of his word. Right? The Spirit is the Spirit who works by means. And how does he work in the lives of God's people? He works through his word. Um, that's why we, we put a high premium on the word of God. Because that's how the Spirit speaks to us. Um, if we want to know what God wants for us, he doesn't speak through a still, small voice. Right? He doesn't, we don't just wander around feeling led by the Spirit. Um, as much as we would like that sometimes. You know, when I, when I was in the throes of, do I stay with my current church and my current calling, or is the Lord calling me to this other calling? There are times where I thought, I'd love to hang out a fleece and get an answer. And then I'd love to do it again to make sure I got the right answer. Um, but that's not how God works. He works through his word. And his word was enough. To study his word, to consider his word, to pray, those were enough for God to make his will clear. Um, and that's how the spirit works. Not by these ephemeral things that so much of the work of the spirit is, is, is tied to nowadays. He works by his word. He's clear with us. He speaks to us. Um, he shows us what the will of God is for us. He teaches us to love righteousness through the word. Um, he teaches us the rules for righteousness through the word. Um, we don't, we don't, we're not left to try to figure out how to please God on our own. God has told us in his word what is pleasing to him. 
um, and that, that is complete for us. So he teaches us a love of righteousness, and he teaches us the rules of righteousness. That's how the Spirit practically helps us in the present. Um, and how does he teach us to love righteousness? He reminds us that God is holy, and so that we should want to be holy. He reminds us that God is holy and that we should want to be holy. Um, that, you know, that, that's, the, that's what hits us when we see that scene of Isaiah in the throne room of God, seeing God being high and lifted up and seeing God being holy. Isaiah recognizes that God is holy and he is not. Right? We're, we're, we're shocked with that scene and that, that's always brought home to us with such force that God is holy and we are not. But when we see God in his holiness, we want to be holy. Right? When, you, when you see God in his holiness and his word, you recognize that holiness is what we ought to want. That holiness is glorious. Right? That so much of the Christian life has to be focused on the, on the idea that to be holy is to be like God. You're to be holy, God says, because I am holy. It's a desirable thing to be holy. Um, Calvin often, as he talks about the Christian life, interesting, will always say, he wants you to lead a good and happy life. And if you keep reading him enough, what you realize is when he says happy, he means holy. The two for him are inseparable. If you really want to lead a happy life, it has to be a holy life. Why? Because the joys of unholiness fade. Um, I remember coming across a, a poet who put it in a really wonderful way, but he said, you know, the, the, the pain, the joy fades, but the pain remains when it comes to sin. You know, we, we don't sin because it's not joyful, that there's something in it we want that seems in the moment better than the holy alternative. But that fades. And what remains is the pain. What remains is the misery. Because the lie the devil likes to tell is you can have the sin without the misery that always comes with it. Sin, sin and misery are, in, are inseparable. Sin brings misery always. That's why when we preach against the sin, and even when we preach against the sin that we see in the world, why do we want to see that sin come out of the world? Well, because we love holiness and we know what unholiness means for our neighbors when they engage in it. It means misery for them. And we don't want them to be miserable any more than we want to be miserable. Right? We want to be happy. And where does true happiness come from? Doing the things that makes God happy that makes for holy and eternal happiness. Where the pain might be for a while in this world to live holy lives in the midst of unholy people, right? To try to be shining like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, that's going to be painful for now, but you know that pain fades and it's the joy that will remain. You know, Jesus suffered greatly for the sake of righteousness and for following his Father's will, but eventually that pain faded. And for him now, it's only joy. Right? At your right hand, there's fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Um, there's lasting there. That's what the Holy Spirit helps to do. He teaches us a love for righteousness, a love for holiness. 
And then he also helps us by impressing the image of Christ on us. Doesn't just say we should love holiness because God is holy, but then he also presses that holy image of Christ on his people. Uh, we've been remade in the image of Christ. Right, Romans 8.29 that we love, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's how the Holy Spirit works in us so that our lives are an image of Christ. That we show Christ to our neighbors. His image is impressed in us and that the world sees a correspondence between who he is and who we are. Um, The Spirit teaches us that, forms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Um, And we're taught to, to prize holiness. We're taught to love righteousness because we see the blessings that flow from it. Um, God reminds us where these things lead. Um, one, of the, one of the things people will point out about the wisdom of Proverbs is that so often the parents stand there and the father says, now you know what your mom and I have been telling you. Here's one path and here's where it leads. And here's another path and here's where it leads. Um, if you walk down this path, because Proverbs, you walk down this path, you die. You walk down this path, you live. But they said, what, what is the challenge of that wisdom? And what, what is the challenge you probably experience if you're a parent? You can tell them which way to walk, you can't walk it for them. And so the, the king says, your mother and I have told you, walk down this path, don't walk down the other one, but I can't walk it for you. The glory of the Spirit is that he comes and says, this is the path that leads to life. This is the path that leads to death. Now I'm going to walk you down the path that leads to life. He doesn't say, I can show you the way, but I can't bring you there. My father would say if he was here, you can't take him there. Um, There's a difference between bring and take. We'll get into this later. This is part of my trouble that I'll have to work out before you. Um, But... (laughs) Just, I don't want to get into it. Um, the point is you take from here to there, you bring from there to here. So the Spirit br- takes you um, on the way that you should go. That's the glory of what the Spirit does. Is he's not powerless. He's not the one who says, I can show you the way, but I can't walk you on it. He says, no, no, let's walk it. Let's walk it. And I'm going to bring you down that path that leads to life. Um, And as we do that, we learn to love him more and more for it. Because we realize how helpless we'd be without him. Um, And and the the Spirit works in that practical way to continue to kindle in us that love of doing what is pleasing to God. And then he helps us by speaking clearly to us about what the rules for righteousness are. Um, God has not left us to, to try to figure it out on our own. What is pleasing to him? Um, he, he said everything we need to know about what's pleasing to him in his word. Um, that's what we confess when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture. We believe it teaches us everything we need to know for doctrine, what we need to believe, and for life, how we need to live, and for worship, what's pleasing to him. He's not left any of that up to our own devices. And why? Why? Because we're not trustworthy, right? We come up with all kinds of ideas for what will please him in our worship. 
and it always produces a golden calf, right? Surely he'll love this. He's like, no. You know, when we went through the, the tabernacle in Exodus uh, a few years ago, I had an opportunity to preach that. I said, you'll notice there is no suggestion box in the tabernacle. There are no instructions for suggestions. And why? Because God knows what we need better than we do. He's not, he's not asking for suggestions because he knows when we offer suggestions, it comes out as a golden calf. And that's fine because he's given us in his word what he wants of us. We don't have to speculate that about that. And that's the same when it comes to our rules for righteousness. Um, he's given us clearly the way we ought to live. He's talked about that clearly in his word. Um, and that's what we can be sure of when we think about the word of God. It's all here. It's all here. There is no mysterious something that God wants from us. Um, because that can, that can hinder the Christian life too, right? If you think there's some mysterious extra that needs to be done that you're not doing. Um, in, in, in every role that God has given us, there can be a temptation to think, I'm failing and he's not pleased with me because I'm failing. You know, it's not just something that's true for pastors or elders or deacons. It's true for parents, right? It's true in our jobs. It's, it's true in the Christian life. We can get that idea that somehow God is not happy with me. Um, but he's very clear about what makes him happy in his word. That we love him and we love our neighbor. And the spirit works in us to help us do what is right to love him and love our neighbor. And the most important work that he always does is connect us to Christ and assure us that your final outcome does not depend on how well you mortify the old self or, morti or bring to life the new. You are not, your salvation is not dependent on how well you do in your sanctification. We need to hear that over and over and over and over again because that is our default. How I am right with God depends on how well I'm walking with God. And when I feel like I've had a good week, I can feel really good about that. Way better than I should feel. And when I'm not doing well, which is more often the case, I feel really bad about it. And what does God's word come to us and say? You are not right with God on account of what you do. You are right with God on account of what Christ has done. And because he's made you right with him, now it's possible for you to live a Christian life. Um, as we continue to go through this, Calvin will boil it down and say, what is the Christian life really about? It's really just about self-denial. Taking up your cross and following Christ. Denying yourself and following him. That's his main principle of the Christian life. Self-denial. Following the Lord. What allows us to do that? It's that sure knowledge that I'm right with God and an heir to eternal life because of what, of Christ, because of what Christ has already done. Calvin puts it in terms of self-denial as the principle of Christian life. We could put it another way, which is to say, be who you are. At the end of the day, the Christian life, that's what it boils down to. Be who you are. When we walk in sinfulness, we're not being who we are. That's, that's what Paul's expressing in Romans 7. I'm not, who I, I'm not acting like who I am. 
there's, there's one part of me in my inner being and I find myself doing things that's just not me, right? And that's really what the Christian life should be all about. I'm trying to be who I am and practicing now who I one day will be, right? I'm, I'm, this is just practice. The goal is perfection. That's what I'm aiming for. And someone might say, well, you don't really mean that. You're not really aiming for perfection. It's like, no, I'm aiming for that. I don't expect to make a whole lot of progress towards that end. I expect to make some progress, but I recognize that even the holiest of people in this life have only a small beginning of looking like Jesus. But I start to look like Jesus in this life. I start to make progress. I can say I'm not who I once was. Um, And I think it's the nature of holiness that we tend to look at the things we're not doing well at all the time and not realize how far we've come in succeeding in walking after Christ in certain ways. We look at our fruit and say, it's not the kind of fruit I'd like to see. But sometimes we have to say, but you know, it's still fruit. It shows that you're bearing fruit. It's the Christian life that says, it's not the kind of fruit I'd like it to be. Of course, because you'd like it to look like Christ. But all of that is the spirit at work. Spirit at work saying, I want my fruit to look better. Um, That's all the spirit in us wanting us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So part of the Christian life is knowing that you're right with God and saying, now I want to live like who I am. Um, and who I one day will be when the perfection of Christ comes. Because we never say, I'll close with this, we never say the goal is perfection and you'll never reach the goal. We always say the goal is perfection and you'll never reach that goal in this life. But you will reach the goal in the life to come. And so we ought to look at the Christian life as I'm practicing now who I'm one day going to be. And because the Spirit's at work, I have some hope of avoiding the next temptation. I'm not a slave to sin. I still will stumble and fall in many ways, but I never have to look at the next temptation and say, I'm powerless against it. Right? Otherwise, the Apostle John could never write to us, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. Right? If sin was just, we had to. He could never write that. It would be unfair. Um, but he, he addresses the reality of the Christian life when he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if anyone does sin, you see what he's doing there? This is the goal of the Christian life, to not sin, to, to be perfect, to live according to the law of God. And we can hope that we can do better because of what the Spirit has done. The next sin is not inevitable. But should it come, we have a mediator. Christ, the righteous one. And he's the, he's the one who turns away God's wrath, not just for us, but he's able to do that for the whole world. Um, and that's how, we, that's how we live the Christian life. In that sure hope that the Spirit brings to us, we are united in Christ with a death like his and a life like his. We are not what we used to be. We're not yet what we will be. But I'm going to strive to be, because I love God, 
the best kind of person I can be now. Not to try to avoid his wrath. I don't need to do that. Christ has died. But because I love him and I want to be like him. I want to be holy because he's holy. Because that's what he loves. And because of what he's done for me, I want to do the things that he loves. You see how that turns around the Christian life into some terrible duty and burden that we're trying to carry into this freeing way of thinking, I'm now right with God and I one day will be perfected and so now my goal is just to be as good as I can be because God loves it. He loves to see the work I'm doing um, and I'm not trying to earn favor before him. I already have that. I'm just trying to be the kind of person that's pleasing in his sight. I think it's a, gratitude is a freeing way of looking at the Christian life. Um, and hopefully as we continue to consider that together, we'll see how that perspective, the help of the Spirit, the hope the Spirit gives, can all help us in the Christian life to look at it in a much more positive light than, many, many, than may, maybe many of us have seen it in the past, where it's always come down on you like a crushing duty. Um, and now it can come to us in Christ as a blessing uh, to be able to live like God by the power of him at work in us. Um, so that's what I hope we'll continue to see as we go on thinking about the Christian life. How can we view it as a grateful life and as a joy-filled life that the Lord gives us the opportunity to live by the freedom in Christ and the powerful working of the Spirit? Um, so that's what I wanted to talk about. Are there any questions? Usually take questions. Yeah? Okay. Well, that's a helpful observation anyway. Um, so we do take... Anyone have any questions? Okay, so things aren't that much different here than they were in Torrance. Okay. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's close our time with prayer. Let's close our time with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the teaching of your word. We confess that we so often have the law in us by nature that we understand do this and you live and don't do it and you die and we can start to take that into our Christian lives and think that we please you on the basis of how we live and we thank you that your word teaches us a better way that we've been brought into fellowship with you solely by your grace and by the work of the spirit who's given us the gift of faith that we might take hold of Christ and all of his benefits. We thank you that on account of what he has done we are now right with you, heirs to eternal life, that you look at us in Christ just as if we had never sinned or been sinners, and just as if we were as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. How that frees us from fear and condemnation under the law. And may that be the, the source of our gratitude that inspires us to live according to your law. Um, that we would do those things because we delight in them and we know you delight in them that it's our goal to be filled with joy over the things that fill you with joy and to know that when we do what's pleasing in your sight, you are pleased. And so, Lord, may we be enabled by your Spirit to be more and more who we are, to be filled with that encouragement to know that one day we will be perfected in Christ, that when we see him, we will be like him. What a glorious promise that is. And out of gratitude, then, in this life, may we seek to be as like him as we can, to strive to be like him, not to try to earn your favor, um, but because we already have it in Christ. 
and because we love you and want you to be pleased. Lord, may love and gratitude motivate us to want to live like Christ and help us in these things we pray by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.